Hi everyone, welcome to this edition of the Ofsted podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the best start in life part two research review and today I've got with me Lee Elston and Wendy Ratcliffe who both work on early years in Ofsted. I was going to start by asking, so this report obviously builds on part one that we published late last year. Why is it so important that we're continuing to focus on early education? Yeah, hi, Shreena. Good to good to talk to you again. It's absolutely vital that we have a focus on early education at Ofsted. It's obviously reflected in one of our strategic priorities, which is about the importance of all children getting that best start in life, because we know that whether children have a good early education or whether they have a poor one, those experiences will live on and they'll affect how they achieve in later schooling and actually in their life generally. And that's why I'm sure lots of people listening will will have heard me say a lot, you know, a child's early education lasts a lifetime. So we need to make sure that what we do in Ofsted and in the sector as a whole is grounded in the very best evidence of what works. And this report is part of the series, so it's part two, and it's what we're trying to achieve by really setting out what we believe the the best evidence looks like. Brilliant. Wendy, did you want to come in as well? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for asking me to join you today. Just building on from what Lee said, very much the work with our youngest children is so, so important. This report, we hope it's going to be really helpful for practitioners and for those who are actually working with the youngest children day in, day out. Lee? Could you tell us a bit about what the key findings from this report are? Yeah, there's hopefully lots in there. And I think what's really important is that there should be no surprises. Much of the content will be very familiar to, to those working in, in earlier settings. So just some of the things to highlight in the, in the time that we have. Communication and language, we know, such a fundamental aspect of every child's thinking and learning. Um, and the rate of their development in this particular area depends absolutely on their interactions with adults. Actually, something that did surprise me in looking through the research and kind of pulling it together with the team was that more talkative, confident children actually receive more interactions and time with adults than the less confident, less communicative children, which to me is kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? But now that we have that in our research, it's it's set out. I think it just makes everybody aware that we need to focus particularly in terms of interactions on those children that aren't necessarily going to come up and ask for our attention, those children that aren't going to be the ones that kind of want to take us by the hand and lead us to the interesting things that they've they've spotted around the setting. So I think if we don't address the fact that you know those children who are less confident in their communication and language have less of the knowledge and skill to be able to kind of do that then obviously we're just going to cause those gaps particularly for disadvantaged children and particularly for boys to widen even further and in terms of personal social and emotional development we know that that underpins children's early learning and emotional well-being we know that those warm positive relationships with adults really help children to understand and manage their emotions. And I think just through those two elements alone, and there's just those kind of snippets that I've managed to share, the fact that when we are talking about the prime areas of learning, which is the focus of part two of our research series, they are so interrelated. You know, the elements of communication and language that influence other areas. And I think while lots of us will have appreciated that already because 
they're the prime areas of learning for a reason, actually it doesn't harm and it doesn't hurt to kind of reiterate that actually there's a mountain and there's a raft of evidence that supports us. And I think um, also you've mentioned communication and language there, Lee, and as well as, you know, personal, social and emotional development. But let's not forget about physical development as well. And thinking about children needing to be physically active and physical development it's central to children's health and their and fitness providing those important foundations for later in life and it's practitioners play such an important role in encouraging those less active children to move more and teach movement skills such as balancing and jumping and I think you know when we think of three and a half year olds who are in settings now are those children who were born at the beginning of those first lockdowns and yeah. missed out on some of that physical activity. Yeah, no, yeah, great, great reminders about that. And and you know, we hear a lot, don't we, about communication and language. And we've we've actually as an organization had a particular emphasis on communication and language over the last what, eight eight months mm. or so. Um yeah. but let's not forget physical development and let's not forget, you know, personal, social and emotional development as well. And and just to pick up on what I was kind of sharing earlier you know yes the prime areas are, are of course interlinked and just to give you a sense of what we mean by that you know we we know that if you have more developed communication and language then that's associated with better emotional well-being because you can communicate your feelings and actually children who are more physically active in the early years are better at regulating their emotions and tend to then do better across kind of primary school particularly so I think they're all a value, aren't they, as individual mm. areas of learning, communication and language, physical development, personal, social and emotional development. But actually the benefit is how they all interrelate and interact in terms of providing that really firm grounding um, that will allow children to, to learn and develop so that they can have those successful early years experiences, but also go on and achieve well across school and obviously into their into their later life. Well, this is all making me feel a lot better about my four-year-old who doesn't stop <laughs> moving or talking. Um, so something that is mentioned quite a lot, which Lee, you've talked about a little bit, is the importance of high-quality interactions. And I just wondered, Wendy or Lee, if you could expand on what you would want practitioners to take away from this bit of the report. Yeah, I think one of the things there, the importance of those high-quality interactions, it is threaded throughout this report and it comes through loud and clear. And it's because those frequent high quality interactions between children and adults, they play such a fundamental role in building the knowledge and skills that children need. And thinking about what practitioners and adults can take from this, we know that those high quality interactions are more likely to take place when adults notice what children know and can do and they respond accordingly. And when adults know the curriculum in advance so they know what it is that they want their children to be able to do during their time in that particular setting. Yeah and, and can I just add I think it's important that we keep acknowledging that this is this is what's important for all children. Yeah. Do all children experience enough planned and incidental interactions with adults to learn what they need? We know for example, you know, some babies and young children will need more targeted time and attention than others. And as I said earlier, you know, it's it's really easy, isn't it, to talk to the chatty children. But mm. actually, what about our kind of deliberate interactions with those that have less 
development and 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 kind of skill in terms of communication and language and they're they're just as important and i think i mentioned earlier you know because we particularly know that the gaps are widest for disadvantaged children in communication and language and particularly particularly boys it is definitely easier to chat to those chatty children they're the ones who are always keen and eager to come up and talk because they've had lots of practice at it Brilliant. And expanding that just a little bit further, is there anything other than what you've talked about that you would like early years practitioners to take from this research? There's lots of key messages in there for, for practitioners. And we've we've tried really hard, even though this is a research report, to ensure that you know the messages we give are really kind of practical. They're really easy to implement and, and digest so that you know people who pick up the report can kind of take bits of it into their into their practice the very next day if that's what they wish. And that means we would encourage everybody to try and kind of dive into the report and and have a look. We hope that by saying some of these important messages that it'll help alleviate some of the worry that providers have, particularly about Ofsted, you know, what what might inspectors want to see when they inspect you. And we want to be clear that if, if you're doing what is right for your children, because you have the unique position of knowing your children better than any inspector who is essentially a stranger to your setting on a, on a particular day, then if you're doing what is, you know is right for your children, those in front of you today, then essentially you can plan for what, what you know they do know and what you know they don't know and ensure that they get the best possible curriculum and experiences. And ultimately, that's what inspection's about, trying to understand why you do what you do and whether that's making a difference to the children's learning and development that that you intended. And while that's kind of boiling inspection down to what? Two questions, two two sentences there. That is the crux of you know what inspectors do when they visit you as, as part of an inspection. So why do you do what you do? And is it making a difference to the children's learning and development that you that you intended? And we've got, you know, as I'm sure you'll all know, we've got various ways of doing that on inspection, whether that's um, a learning walk, conversations, but essentially it's those two things that we try to get underneath. Absolutely. And, it, you know, we really do want people to have the confidence to do what they do every day and don't do anything different just because the inspector calls. And I think the other thing, thinking about this report in particular, is that there's some key messages for each of those prime areas as well that I think those working with our youngest children um, would find useful, really. And I think the other thing we do know, of course, is that the decisions that managers and leaders take are important. And by prioritising the prime areas in their curriculum thinking and allocating sufficient time and resources, they can make sure children, all children, get off to that best start in their early education. Brilliant. And finally, I understand this is part of a trilogy. This is part two of a trilogy and we've got the last last part to come. Can you give us a bit of a sneak preview as to what part three will focus on? <laughs> We've been really clear about what part three we'll look at and that will it will conclude this research series for those working with the youngest children. So that's birth to four. So pre-reception children. And it's going to build on part one and two. But the focus will be on the four specific areas of learning. Absolutely. And I think just to add to that, as a package as a whole. So once we have part three published, so parts one, two and three is essentially about you know, a broad curriculum, which is well thought out, make sure that all staff make the most of those planned and and incidental interactions and essentially ensures that we think about both the prime and the specific areas of learning. And to leave people just with a a kind of another phrase in which they can think about this work, 
again, something I say all of the time, you know, ultimately, we want all children to experience a curriculum by design, not by chance. And that means we want staff to be thinking through the kind of decisions that they're making in terms of what it is they do and don't do in terms of all children and particularly those that we know have gaps that either that through the pandemic or just in terms of you know individual children and what they do and don't understand yet we want staff to be able to kind of use that knowledge to ensure that all children get a curriculum that they have designed not one that's just just by chance watch out for part three we do hope that will be published certainly in the in the next few months brilliant thank you very much lee and wendy it's been really nice to talk to you Thank you to everyone for listening and please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and look out for the next episode. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks. Ofsted Talks.